What's up, humans? It's Michael Shiloh. Welcome back to The Edge of What's Known. Today on the show, we're speaking with Etienne Fortier-Dubois about the problems with scientific publishing and what an ideal future might look like. One where science is freely shared amongst all thinkers, not merely those within a discipline, or those with the institutional power to pay for access. Etienne is presently working on a new journal called JAWS, the Journal of Actually Well-Written Science. His goal is to reformat high-impact papers so they can be understood by anyone with a basic undergraduate-level comprehension of the material. It's a fairly low bar in a society like the United States where nearly half the population has a college degree. Our conversation expands into alternatives to peer review, a recurring point of contention on this show among outsiders and academics alike. If you're enjoying the ride here at Demystifying Science, remember to hop on over to our Patreon page, at DemystifySci, and consider pledging whatever amount you can manage. It keeps our spaceship in orbit and warms our hearts. Plus, it allows us to bring you higher and higher quality content. Remember, if you want to watch this conversation, you can easily do it over at our YouTube channel, Between Two Aliens, and be sure to look out for our upcoming short film all about the historic use of magical fluids in science. You can find that one very soon at our main Demystifying Science YouTube channel. And now, I give you... Etienne Fortier-Dubois on Rethinking How Science is Published. When they founded the journal Nature in 1869 or so, it was intended to be kind of popular science made by scientists. And very, very, very quickly, the scientists were like not interested in actually doing that and switched to just sharing things between themselves. Within a year or two of the journal having been born and having a bunch of subscribers who were random educated people who wanted to learn about science, those readers were already complaining that the science in nature was becoming very hard to understand. There's a level of effort you need to expand, a level of energy, and maybe that's worth it because this paper is something you're really interested in. So it's not necessarily a matter of opening a gate that was closed to a lot of people, but it's just a matter of making the path easier to, to follow. But there are never any obvious solutions when you are dealing with social norms. Because social norms are not enforced by any central authority that you can go to and say, hi, could we do this differently, right? But you can change social norms maybe by uh, showing the rest of the world that it works and over time people will adapt. Norms can change. Welcome to Demystifying Science, where we are exploring the edge of what's known. And today with us on the show, we have Etienne Fortier-Dubois, who is working on something that we are very interested in, which is the Journal of Well-Written Science, something that anyone who has ever read a scientific paper should be very interested in. So welcome to the show, Etienne. Hi, thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about how you stumbled upon the idea for the Journal of Well-Written Science? What has your journey been like? I mean, the basic answer, like the very immediate answer is I think someone tweeted about this idea and I never could find a tweet again. So credit <laughs> goes to that anonymous person. Um, but then I was thinking about it. Um, I think I sort of half dreamt about it when I was taking a nap. And it seems like um, trying to improve the quality of science writing should be a worthwhile endeavor. And it threw me back to things from my background. Like when I, I so basically my background uh, my initial academic background is biology. 
I did a bachelor and a master's degree in biology, and I was kind of on track for like research career, uh, PhD, and everything. I gave up after my master's, so I there were many reasons I think, and I th- I still think to this day like, that was five years ago, and I think it was the right decision for many reasons, and I sort of half joked that one of the reasons was that I just hated reading science papers and I should do something that would allow me to not read science papers. Um, although you're, you're probably not alone in that. Oh, for sure. I, I, I know I'm not. Um, but like, I think established scientists sort of become used to the way it's done. So like no one really has an interest in changing the, the system, uh, except if you're an outsider like me. Um, well, there's yeah, a standard that everybody starts writing towards. We we came across this when when yeah. we were writing papers, where it's basically there is a voice that you have to take on, and it's this very tortured voice where you have to. There's these passive constructions, the very artificial refusal to use the word "I," and it creates the a place where. Not to mention jargon and just. This mm-hmm. impenetrable acronyms. isolation. For me, acronyms were always the hardest. When I'm reading a paper and there's 40 different acronyms for the various genes and proteins, I just there's a part of my brain that just wants desperately to shut off and to put the paper away and to never return to it. Which but is, at least you know what a gene and a protein is. If you're outside the discipline, it's like, forget about it, <laughs> yeah, right? If you're, reading a, if you're reading a cosmology paper, it's like, what is this acronym, yeah. you know? Yeah, so it's a it's a huge problem, and I, and you're definitely not alone in this. And so, what sure. is the what are the obvious solutions? I guess. Well, I mean, it's a question of social norms. So there are never any obvious solutions when you are dealing with social norms because social norms are not enforced by any central authority that you can go to and say, "Hi, could we do this different?" Right? <laughs> the social norms are enforced by all of the. PhD advisors that you have when you are uh, a student, all the editors of journals, every and all the other scientists, uh, the peer reviewers, right? All of the system of science, without anyone having chosen deliberately to make to do this like this, uh, has converged onto norms for for reasons also. And like I don't want to say all the norms are bad. Like there are many good reasons and many good norms among those, but some of them are bad and. Um, and because they are like not uh, centralized uh, norms, you cannot just easily change anything. If you change someone's mind, well, that doesn't do anything because what if, I think there's a lot of young researchers, PhD students who would like to write their papers in a different way, but then all of the system goes down on them and say, well, no, you're not going to write your paper like this because that's not the scientific, the proper way to do it. And maybe if you convince one, like the PhD advisor of that person, that they should still write that, write that in that other style they're trying, that still doesn't do anything because there's all, as I said, the editors and so on and so forth. So no obvious solutions, but you can sort of change social norms maybe by uh, showing, demonstrating how things can be done and sort of playing a game of reputation, of trying to do things differently and showing to the rest of the world that it works and that you can actually do science that way and over time people will adapt norms can change over time of course so like a lead by example kind of idea <clears throat> what do you sure. what do you think are what do you think are the positives like you 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 said that you know there's some reason there's some good reasons for why this has been the format in which science writing has right. developed 
good and bad reasons. Yeah. Let's start with the good reasons. We can get the good reasons out of the way. We can say that we've covered that and then Well, it just on. seems like it would be like utter chaos if you had everybody speaking in a completely different tone, right? This is kind of why social norms evolve in general, I imagine. Mm-hmm. It's just so that everyone can be on some basic page, you know? You go out in the world and people are not wearing the same pants, but they're all wearing pants, basically, right? And, and there's like, conventions that make sense about, you know... The gene name is italicized and the protein name is not. And so you can, there's there's various sort of jargony things that work like that. But I, I guess what I'm asking is why, what parts of this relatively impenetrable style are positives? Is there a positive in the impenetrability of it? Because the, it seems... To, for, to me, having read a lot of science papers and having, you know, sometimes the, you'll be in the lounge and there's uh, a nature magazine or a science magazine and you optimistically pick it up and you're like, I'm going to look through this. And then you start looking through it and very quickly you're like, I can't. I can't. I am... By degrees. By degrees, Some are right? Than others, right? That's true. But you get okay. to a point where there's just absolutely no ability to actually read cover to cover a journal that is filled with cutting-edge science of different disciplines. And that seems intentional. I'm not sure if it's intentional or if it's just the natural way things evolve if you let scientists their own device for 100 years. But, but let's see. The, what good reasons would there be for this? I mean, as you, you mentioned, convention, standardization, right? Like, you sort of know what to expect. So there is... Um, if you had much more freedom, you would have probably very good things that would come out, papers that are highly readable, highly convincing uh, from really good writers, and you would also get a lot of crap, right? You would get papers written in ways that don't make sense and people making all sorts of claims and uh, that you can't even know what you're trying to say, they're trying to say because this is... Um, because, you know, they don't have the conventions on objectivity, for instance, of, mm. like trying to not uh, put their opinion. Like if you write a sentence where you say, I don't know, something like um, you use some adverb like highly or uh, or maybe something, a word like good or better or something. And like people might not like that you're describing some method as better than other because that's kind of a subjective statement. And maybe and I mean, maybe. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. But like objectivity is probably a good thing in most cases of science. So th- there's that. Probably makes papers easier to write as well when you just have a set of conventions you can just use. The most salient example might be the, the IMRAD format, right? Introduction, methods, results, discussion. Uh, you're going to write an experimental paper, you just... Take this. Why would you reinvent the way to write a paper? It might actually not be the best way to write all of the experimental papers, but you know it works. People know what to expect when they read, and people know what to expect when they write. So there's that. Um, well, it seems like it adds a level of efficiency to the whole matter. I think that, like a lot of it boils down to, well, we're not going to explain this whole concept to you. We're going to stick an acronym here, or we're going to reference some concept that everyone in our field knows, because they're the only people that need to know this anyways. And there's this sort of baked-in isolation to it. It just seems like a really insulating format, where, you know, you're not... You're, obviously, everyone knows what this, this idea is all about, so why do we need to go to length to talking about, about it right now? 
Which makes a lot of sense, except the problem is that there's no way when you're reading a journal right now to dive through all those layers. If you're not up to speed on a particular discipline, you can't just click a link and go and find out about this, this uh, sort of fundamental concept that everything's built right. upon. I guess the question is, should the layman be able to read a scientific paper? Or, or the scientific generalist? Or the scientific generalist. Should the scientific generalist be able mm -hmm. to walk into a space and read calmly through Nature magazine and grasp everything that's in there? Isn't that the function of, you know, popular science magazines? Right. That's, uh, and that's a good point. And I think there are good arguments to say that, no, that's not necessary. When you write a paper, it's meant for a very, very, very tiny subset of science of, or of the world. And that's fine. Maybe that's, and maybe that's fine. Um, my, my, my position is that like, it would not take that much effort to just mm. expand the tiny subsets so that you get <laughs> scientists who are not as involved into that very, very, very specific sub-discipline you're in. And then you get, you get benefits for, uh, for them and for society at large if you do that. Um, and there seems to be some in real inherent benefit in people outside a discipline looking into a discipline. You know, we've seen this in the past where people who, who are outside actually are able to make comments on things that are just so, like, just ideas that are so entrenched in a discipline that they wouldn't even notice them going by. I mean, a biochemist is not the same thing as a theoretical chemist. Um, a biophysicist is not the same thing as a, a physicist. And so you, you, but they you use overlapping principles. They do, right? but because they're so isolated inside mm -hmm. of journals right now, there's, you know, even if the physicist was able to read through the biology paper quickly and be like, oh, well, these are faulty assumptions. Or the, bio or the chemist is able to do the same thing. Right now, everything is so siloed that you can't do that. And so the question is, like, how simple do you make it? Do you make it so that right. everyone can read it? Do you make it so that someone who has, you know, four years of science undergrad education can read it? Do you make how it... How about for the bare minimum that other PhDs <laughs> in other disciplines can read it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it just seems like, you know, in, in democratic government, there's checks and balances, right? There's nothing like that in the peer review system. And, and that's my biggest concern, personally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, that, yeah, I would agree with that. What do you think? And, and like, and, and there are, there's different levels to this. Like, I think anyone can read, or anyone who has a, new, a university education, let's say, can read a science paper if they really want to, right? But then it's a, there's, a, there's a level of effort you need to expand, a level of energy, and like, basically it's work. Maybe it'll take you a full work day to read through a paper. And maybe that's worth it because if paper is something you're really interested in for your own research or whatever, even if it's not something you're familiar with. Um, so it's not necessarily a matter of opening a gate that was closed to a lot of people, but just a matter of making the path easier to, to follow. Um, but what, how easy? Yeah, that's a good question. My, I think a good like, shelling point, like a good place we can sort of converge on is undergrad students. They're supposed to have enough background so that, and they're supposed to start reading paper at that moment in their education. So. Uh, maybe not everything needs to be absolutely super easy for a first-year physics student or whatever, but, you know, that seems like a good ideal to aim for um, without going all the way to making it to the level of a five-year-old child, which I think is exaggerated. <laughs> and, you know, that can be a different part of publishing. That's fine. I think it's a great idea because 
That would make undergraduate education so much closer to the real world because you could dive in. We see this all the time. We teach undergraduates and we'll have this, this sort of impulse to send students literature. Oh, this is a great paper about what we were talking about in class today. And it's often a sort of hopeless endeavor to do that for this exact problem. Yeah. And so I love the idea that you would make it open to university students so that they could immediately start pegging what they're learning in the classroom to the real world and the cutting edge of research. and Well, because what's written in a textbook is usually so far off from what's written in the literature. Mm-hmm. And you can only, and there's this process of becoming a scientist and becoming someone who can read these science papers where you gradually come to learn that what you learn in the textbook is is only partially true. Right? And there's so much right. more left to be learned, right? I, I yeah. really had this feeling when I was coming up through the education system, like, oh, science is done. Like, especially, you know, especially some of my favorite topics in physics. Oh, we're, we're basically, we figured everything out. Don't worry about it. I was like, man, maybe I should just become a physician or something more practical, an engineer. I don't know. But uh, I think that's a real disservice because science is, always has this bleeding edge of, of unknown which is sort of what we try to focus on here at this show. And it seems like having a journal of science that is well-written is also is, is an excellent step in the right direction. And then there's this other part, which is there's a lot of basic ideas that you can't necessarily explain. And it seems like journals haven't leveraged the, the, the ability of the internet to hyperlink and crosslink ideas. I've always wondered why it's not possible to be reading through mm-hmm. a paper and get to, for example, a statistical method, right? S- statistics are the backbone of, of how data is analyzed. You need to be able to understand the statistical test that they've used in order to be able to understand the conclusions. But oftentimes you get to the statistical method and you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to go read the Wikipedia page to see if I can figure this out. Mm-hmm. But the way that the Wikipedia page is written is not necessarily easily translatable to the way that they've analyzed their data. And so you get to this point where you're like, I don't know that I can fully analyze the quality of this paper because I am fully willing to say on record, I am not the strongest math person in the world. And so for me, I would love to be able to just click on the statistical test and basically have a short, well-written summary of how the statistical test mm-hmm. was applied, how it's used, what it does. And the same thing for, for other yeah, methods. This could be extended to all methods in general or, right? or to just all underlying fundamental concepts to the point that you're just able to find what, you're, what the meaning is in every sentence of the paper very quickly. Is that sort of what you're what you're imagining, or what is your approach to this in general? Yeah, I mean, you say it can be extended to the methods. It can be extended to the entire background. Yeah, it's necessary to understand what actual experiment or observations you did. Um, I mean, to, to some level, I think it would be fine if papers just started linking to Wikipedia all the time. Like, because let's be real, everyone is always going to go check at Wikipedia for things they don't know all the time. And obviously, you know, Wikipedia is not like the most uh, vetted source and so on and so forth but you know like as a starting point as it's a like a first point, order approximation of what's going ex- on exactly and like just make it easier for people if you are referencing a term that is likely for your audience not to that they don't know it uh, at either explain it or link to somewhere where it's explained it's not very difficult to do this and it can help i mean and i'm just going to mention now that like Pretty much everything I think about for what the new norms should be is based on two principles, one of which is make it easy for the reader. 
as much as you can without making, and the second principle is don't make it easy for yourself as a writer. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't make it hard. I, I mean, um, you don't want a lot of work necessarily to be expanded in this writing a single paper if you have other things to do. So I'm saying let's focus on the low hanging fruit, but a lot of that low hanging fruit is not hard and will actually make life easier for your reader. And so if you're expecting your reader to need to know the definition of the term, then write the definition of a term, link to it, or and maybe you can have fancier uh, um, fancier mechanisms like a collapsible section uh, directly in the paper, where you know people who already know about this they don't need to read it. If you do, if you do, if you do not, then open it. Three sentences. Now you know what it is. Close it and keep going. And I mean that that also the the collapsible section and the sort of hyper the the sort of the ability to to insert these things makes a lot of sense. The same thing with figures, right? Figures mm -hmm. are what every paper is is written around, but in a paper form, when you actually have the printout in front of you, you find yourself having to constantly be flipping back and forth between the paper and the writing, or sorry, the the figure and the writing, because it runs off the page, right? You can't get all of the ideas on one page, and so that's always struck me as something that desperately needs to be addressed in the digital realm. And there's there's definitely some sort of workarounds where people are trying to come up with creative ways to to format PDFs or create shells for being able to read scientific papers. But it seems like the full technological ability of making a paper readable hasn't been leveraged. And no. is that is that a problem of will? Is that a problem of technical difficulty? Is that a problem that no one like you has come around yet to be like, I'm going to take care of this? What do you figure is happening? That's a good, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, how there are good and bad reasons for the current situation and probably more on the bad reason side of things. Because the, side, the the papers, well, the journal industry seems to be uh, slow moving. It's probably why in the year 2021, we still have the basic format of a paper being a PDF that you can print out. And, you know, being able to print out things is great. Like reading not on a screen it has value, but clearly the format, I mean, I mean, even the idea of a paper itself, it doesn't really need to be a paper with all those sections and so on. Uh, lots of things could be adapted for online reading and they are not, or when they are, it's by small actors who don't matter because they don't have any prestige or reputation. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of the root of pretty much all of the problems is probably this industry that is slow moving, very lucrative in their current state. So no incentive to do anything. Right, so it seems like the idea that's on the table that's most central is you need to pull that audience into something that's actually, I mean, arguably, you're focused on making things easier for them. So it is probably going to be a more ideal situation for the authors and the readers, the academic community in general. Question is, how do you pull that audience mm -hmm. from something they're completely accustomed to into a completely new paradigm? Yeah, if I knew the answer, my project would probably be going much better than it is right now. Um, I've been trying to study, for instance, why are the top journals like Nature and Science, why are they the top journals? Why are they prestigious? And, you know, prestige kind of breeds prestige, so it's a very, very difficult thing to get into. Um, is it their so, longevity? Are they, are they the oldest journals? Exclusivity. They're not the oldest journals. 
Uh, nature and science started in the late 19th century, so they are pretty old, but journals are like 350 years old. Um, but they kind of were new, they kind of disrupted the journal industry in, the, in those years. To be honest, I think they were kind of the social media of the science world in the early 20th and late 19th centuries. And that gave them an advantage, I guess, that they eventually built upon. Um, because before journals, it was like scientists just writing letters to mm-hmm. one another and then eventually to the academy at large. And the academy started publishing these letters, if I'm not mistaken, which eventually evolved into these completely separate entities. And But to right. be clear, when you're reading these letters from the late 19th century, they're very readable. Occasionally you'll come across oh, something absolutely. that's you know, complicated, but, and I don't know, sometimes I wonder if it's just an expansion of our cultural baseline of understanding where, you know, I read it now from the position where I'm at and it's like, well, this is very readable, but would somebody of my position felt the same thing in, you know, 1890? I I don't necessarily know that that's the case. It's hard to... 1890 podcasters. (laughs) Yeah. Like like on the... Interesting thing, an interesting thing from reading that book I read on the history of nature and I have it here right now, like just... I can show you making nature. Um, when they founded the journal Nature in 1869 or so, um, it was intended to be kind of popular science made by scientists. And very, very, very quickly, the scientists were like not interested in actually doing that mm. and switched to just sharing things between themselves. But like in a kind of shorter and quicker format that uh, they had before. And like within a year or two of the journal having been born and having a bunch of subscribers who were random educated people who wanted to learn about science, those readers were already complaining that the science in nature was becoming very hard to understand. Hmm. So problem is not new. It's, it's, uh, it's always been like this. Um, so, but where were we going with this? Yeah, uh, We were going with this of, you know, why is this so hard to turn over? Like, how do you yeah, get How do you people- incentivize this transition, essentially? Yeah. yeah. And I mean that's 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 a hard thing. Have you have you started speaking to people who are, you know, publishing in nature and science to see if they're interested in this like where what what where is the project as it stands right now, I guess. Yeah, the project is at the point where I should probably be talking to way many more people. Um and I will get there. So I think they would probably not be very interested in publishing in a no-name journal that nobody's ever heard of. Maybe there's a way to sort of have people who are like scientists who are really interested in uh, communication uh, publish a version in whatever top journal they're trying to publish in, and also in uh, the Journal of Well-Written Science. Um, and you have them to parallel versions. I think, I mean, it's kind of similar to having a paper in a journal and then somebody, some journalist making a popular science piece out of your thing, right? Um, yeah, like I wonder if you could relicense the papers somehow from these top journals and put them through the ringer and sort of reissue them. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I would like to do. There's a, obviously a bunch of issues with this, like intellectual property. I have no idea how to deal with intellectual property at this point. But yeah, if like ideally, so the, the, the maybe naive, maybe not idea that I had up front, like from that Twitter uh, tweet I saw several months ago was really let's just rewrite papers. Papers that are papers that are important, papers that people think will have more impact if they're read more widely. Um, 
but that they really that are really tedious. And if you do this enough, and if you have a community of contributors who are interested in helping out, and ideally in a financially sustainable way, um, then you can eventually have a pretty nice existing platform or journal that people will recognize and say, hey, some this thing has this work has been published in that journal. That journal I know is good and uh, fairly fun or easy to read, then over time, you increase the reputation. That's my guess. I think it could work. It's just there's a lot of unknowns in that process. Like, I almost feel like you should aim your this journal at non, like people outside the discipline specifically. Hey, if you want to know what's going on in other fields, read our read this. And, you know, I think it would only take a few outsiders coming up with insight in other disciplines like that to really... Yeah, start recommending that journal to their peers, and maybe you get some wildfire thing eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, it, it, from a from a utilitarian standpoint, it seems like it would really help solve problems in various fields. Where if there's some if there's some scientific question people are butting their heads against, but then from another field, someone can look into it and give some insight. It would because everybody pays a lot of lip service to the idea of interdisciplinary collaboration and all of these big sort of big grant uh, getting organizations where there's many different types of scientists. But if you could lower the price of entry where it's like, well, hey, you don't need to get a grant to all work together in order to be able to offer each other insights, that's a pretty powerful incentive in the long run of being able to get people to actually take a closer look at something like this. But I remember we were talking about translating these papers and you were saying that you sat down to actually do a translation and you found that it was pretty, it was pretty time consuming. It took you like it several is. weeks for one paper or something, eh? It is work intensive. I mean, maybe if I had really, really, really focused on it, eight hours a day, I would have done it in two or three days, maybe, but like I was doing a few hours here and then, and it took me maybe two weeks. Um, it's a lot of work because the paper, well, it was a 5,000 word paper, which, you know, is fair, fairly long and, but like not overly long, like papers often have these, uh, these lengths. Um, so just, you know, just at the level of you, if you were just retyping all of it, it would, it's, it's some work, right? And then you have to spend some time thinking, should I change the structure? Should I put this section here instead? And oh, this sentence is really, really, really difficult to read. Let's just rewrite it, maybe break it up in three sentences and so on. Um, it's not an easy task. And I've been wondering, and that's part of why right now I'm uncertain of the of whether it's worth pursuing exactly that uh, avenue, because I'm, I'm wondering, it's a very specific niche paper about the genomic evolution of the immune system in vertebrates. Um, I don't know what, like the target audience for that paper is probably small. Even if it were more readable, you still don't have necessarily that many people who would like to read it, even if it's not that hard. So lots of work for probably very little gains, which is why the ideal is really to take the papers very carefully and pick papers that maybe hundreds of people would be interested in reading if they had less energy, if, if it took less energy. 
Um, yeah, we come across this sometimes when, you know, because we, we go out into the world and we look for people to interview. And sometimes you look at somebody's work and you realize that the work that they produce is highly niche. Yeah, and, like yeah. even the best read papers are read, what, a thousand times or something? I mean, it's kind of crazy. I think it's like the average paper... I saw this somewhere. I don't you know? Don't quote me on it. It's like four times. A paper is read like four times on average, and so you're always going to be up against this wall where you have this yeah. deluge of writing, and how much of it can you deal with? Which makes me wonder how can we bring some sort of more automated, supervised AI into this process to sort of mm -hmm. speed things up? Have you investigated that, or have you thought about collaborating with some Silicon Valley type folks, or? Yeah, they like to disrupt things, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, again, an avenue I haven't really have had time to explore very deeply yet, but I think that would be a promising, um, promising tools. Like GPT three can simplify text. We've been. It's known to be used, I think, mostly maybe in things like marketing or so on. Like if you want to write marketing copy, you put a text in it and it outputs something. Death. Troll bots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, but like, so I think probably you would need to build a tool. And but you're right, like lots there's there's some potential here. And if the idea of just rewriting papers is the right way, it probably will require some sort of automation like this. But this speaks to kind of a deeper thing, right? So there, I don't even want to cast an estimate of how many scientists there are in the world and how many papers are getting written on a weekly basis in the world. I've and read the, the figure of 2 million per year for papers, so, you know. That's crazy. There's no, this is something that I think about a lot, where if you go back in time 200 years, the amount of things that you need to learn in order to be current with the discipline is very finite. You know, you can draw a box around it, you're like, this is what we know, and that's it. And it's an expanding universe. And yeah. In this sense. And in this sense, right, like, we get to the point of 2 million papers a year, we have we have crossed the point where anyone is able to read all of the papers that would be relevant to mm -hmm. their ability to understand something. And by the way, don't quote me on the two billion thing. I'm really not sure, but like that's it numbers, sounds right. Number. It feels yeah. right, right? Because I mean, like nature's public. Like the journal, lots of journals are published every week. There's an immense amount of journals. There's new ones all the time that are popping up for specific disciplines or to address the fact that you know people are frustrated with peer review. There's a huge number of papers. It's a constantly expanding universe, like Michael Shiloh said. Is, is the answer to try to get all of that information into our brains? Like, what is, is, that, is that the best way to do science moving forward? Because when we teach students, you know, we're, we, right now we're teaching um, a companion course for anatomy and physiology. And as an adult, I'm looking at the way that biology is taught, and biology is not taught as a discipline of this is how you do science. Biology is taught as a discipline of this is the collection of facts that you will remember in order to be able to recall them in the position that you will occupy after graduation. And for those that go into research, obviously there's a point where you begin to learn how to do research, but the discipline of science is taught as literally a laundry list of facts. Two million papers a year, or even a million, or even 200,000 a year, that's not possible to fold into the laundry list of details that you remember. Are we, 
Is this an insane endeavor? Is science an insane endeavor? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, but it must, it's not necessarily more insane than any other intellectual endeavor like writing or reading fiction or whatever, right? So, you know, it's not bad that there's a lot of information, that there's a lot of science being done, that there's a lot of scientists working on various problems. I think it's, like, it's indeed a very good thing. It just makes information organization and architecture way more important. And, 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 you know, like just to still sell my project a little bit, it makes it even more important that the norms to do this are good so that, you know, we produce good knowledge instead of difficult to grasp knowledge. Um, are there other people who are working with you in this space? There's a lot of people who are interested in some way in improving science and also more specifically in improving science publishing. Um, there's like just someone who's been floating the idea for a few days, someone, an acquaintance of mine who wants to buy all the journals, like raise billions of dollars, buy all of the journals and just release everything um, over time. You know, and so, so you know. Sounds like, like Sci-Hub, but more expensive. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. A legitimate <laughs> version of Sci-Hub. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, which, you know, I don't know if that's feasible or even desirable, but um lots of people recognize that there's a problem and so some people want to do it uh, to do something about it i don't have any um collab like close collaborators right now but i would like to have some um so if anybody's in the market looking for collaborations hit up etienne for sure absolutely and we'd uh, love to hear about it too this is something really near and dear to our hearts that we have been thinking about for years honestly ever since i first tried to read a scientific paper for the first time in my life and really started to go down the rabbit hole in a particular discipline years and years ago for me that was the immune system and trying to understand all the different interactions between the signaling processes involved and it really occurred to me that you know, more, almost more than more experiments, what we needed was an infrastructure for making sense of the data that was already there. Like a centralized, s s I hate to use this term, but a, a sense-making apparatus, an actual centralized way of organizing all this information because even a single paper generates way more data than is actually spoken about in the paper itself. Yeah, like in the future, I would love to see a separation between the people that are collecting the data and the people that are analyzing the data. That's the dream, yeah. Because you have yeah. such you have such a desire to prove something in science, right? You s and obviously, you're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to be proving anything in science. You're supposed to be working on falsifying your hypothesis. But anyone who has ever been in a laboratory knows that the process is not about disproving what you think is happening. That it's does not put dinner on the table for your family. Right. Negative <laughs> results don't get published. And yeah. even a journal of well-written science, like how many negative results could you publish? If there's two million papers a year of positive results, if there's or however if there's X number of papers per year of positive results, I can only imagine how many papers a year of positive and negative results there would be. It would be madness, just utter chaos with no yeah. indexing ability whatsoever. For sure. And, and definitely my project would not help with that <laughs> in its current form because it would most likely focus on, you know, the the most interesting science, which so maybe it would actually make things slightly worse in that respect where we focus more on the sen sensationalistic or the uh, most, well, the most impactful science, which is, is not bad either. You know, like there's trade-offs here and there. Um, I have hopes that at least if we make things more readable, maybe things like 
uh, fraud or bad analysis will be also more visible. So we can uh, help. it can help with that. But we'll have to see. And and there's this that brings up this idea of anal- you say analysis. And that's the idea that, hey, you do these experiments, now what do they mean? And usually in a paper, we get this little discussion section. This is what it means. And people are generally, authors are generally very reluctant to go too far with that, right? It's, it's, yeah. You're almost not really allowed to say, having written a number of papers myself, there's very little you can say in that without overstepping your bounds. And so you end up with this very suffocated, concise, singular interpretation of the data. Um, this is a little bit beyond the scope of what you're working on, but it'd be wonderful to see that opened up to in a crowdsourced fashion to interpretations from experts in other disciplines or just from anybody who is able to, you know, I'm imagining a sort of stack exchange, uh, uh, Reddit style crowdsourcing of peer review as an alternative. What do you think about that? Would it work? <laughs> um, I think, well, I think, yeah, there's probably, I think this plays into the larger ideal maybe of unbundling the way that science is being done right now. Right now you have the scientists have to wear so many hats, which is not necessarily a bad thing for for some reasons. Uh, You want people who are able to write and experiment and analyze and gather data and so on and so forth. And like come come up with new hypotheses. But you also... But it's also not the most efficient way to do things. So if you have people who are specialized in all of those different things I mentioned, and also papers or ways to share research, because at this point, we would not call them papers um, that are specialized in all those areas. And then it's fine to say my contribution of science is gathering this data set. And now I'm publishing this data set in this journal of data sets. Maybe I think that exists, like kind of a new thing. Um, and you get recognized for it, uh, that's good. The problem right now, and again, it goes to the prestige and reputation puzzle we uh, were talking about earlier, it's the only way to gain reputation points in science is to publish full papers in a top journal. Um, and I mean, that, that's, a, that's a hard thing to solve, right? Like you can imagine it being, there's being lots of collaborations, and but this all seems the sort of, it's, it's a much bigger question. Like the Journal of Well-Written Science is one aspect of an enormous constellation of changes that have to come to science over the course of the next, you know, the next century or so, because it's central to our society. Our society has decided that the way that we make decisions is tied to scientific results. And we have to have a way of parsing these scientific results, of understanding them, of integrating them in order to be able to make good decisions. And the Journal of Well-Written Science is one aspect of this. Mm-hmm. My question is, how do you pick papers that you think are impactful? That's one of my main questions right now, actually. One possibility would be some sort of crowdsourcing where maybe you have an well there's something like research hub right this is a new website that's been founded last year or the year before maybe Mm. where people it's kind of the reddit of science where scientists are actually sharing papers Mm. and discussing them um and maybe from a tool like this you can sort of 
make sense of the two million or so papers that are published all the time. And then you say, well, maybe you can find the best ones and say, oh, this actually seems useful. People are sharing it, but could it be shared more if it were more readable? So that's, that, that would be one, uh, one possibility. Another would be to have, instead of big crowd, like a small crowd of few people who are living library kind of types where people are really, really well aware of what's going on in some field and uh, uh, are able to, to target the, the most relevant, the most impactful papers. Uh, I mean, journalists to some extent already do this, right? If you write a, if you're a researcher and you write something that seems cool enough to be talked about in more main, in like more mainstream media, um, then you can, uh, you you might have sorry, uh, you might have a, a journalist saying, "Hey, can I talk to you about this? This is cool." Like this happened to me with a friend who were writing about spiders and like lots of scientists came to him to sort of write uh, pieces about this spider paper hmm. how did you journal like so this is kind of a less of a scientist or even a publisher skill and more of a journalist skill but it's a useful skill that an organization dedicated to make science more readable would have to develop mm -hmm. definitely yeah and I think I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of things that need to work together here. It seems like all of you folks who are working on this problem need a central place to hang out and work together on this. And I wonder, has social media been useful to you in this endeavor? Can you imagine? Are you could you imagine a conference of of folks trying to address these very issues? Because there's there's just so many different tentacles of this monster that need cut off. And I wonder. <laughs> If all of you uh, have any, if there's any hope of of uniting the different forces, yeah, I uh, I think so. I mean, there's like maybe three main dimensions of why science is broken to some level. Like there's funding, there's publishing, and I think I think there would be another one, but I'm not sure what the actual word is. Maybe uh, something like the way the work is organized, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. separation of the. Uh, interpreters and the data generators perhaps yeah and, and also just things like like the fact that it's really hard on your own daily life or your own lifestyle to be a scientist maybe you could you know maybe you don't need to move all the places and and it's years and years and years of trying to get a job um so you know there's a, a bunch of dimensions to the problem i think Right now, I think most people are tackling one of them at a time. Maybe it would actually be feasible to have a more central organization that uh, that does try to do all of that at once. Maybe, maybe you're not. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, it's at the very beginning of the of this conversation, you mentioned that these are social norms, and we don't really have a place to discuss social norms. Very true. And it's funny because actually we used to many hundreds of years ago. I feel like the church actually did that. Mm. It was a place where we sat around and discussed social norms. We, maybe not, maybe a certain, maybe it was still very much relegated to a very distinct elite class of people. I am not advocating that we go back to having a church be in charge of this. I'm just saying to go back to the church, like just like uh, the Royal Society, right? Or the Academy of Science of your country or whatever. These are, I suppose they're meant to be a bunch of things, but one of them is sort of some sort of coordination uh, organization that establish what 
is important and so well maybe, or at least bring scientists like top scientists together to discuss and come up with things but the problem here is that if those societies are somehow profiting from this being a cloistered enterprise then they're no longer able to serve as a jury for those social norms and yeah. so the question becomes what will replace that how do we come together as a society to discuss a scientific yeah. society to discuss that in a centralized fashion maybe this is a point where you come in and say bitcoin solved this um go on honestly i, I don't know yeah okay <laughs> There's a, there's a lot of people like who are also trying to bring crypto, which sort of creates new opportunities for governance mechanisms, for decision-making for groups, um, and do something, about, do something about science or other uh, fields. Uh, and, and I don't know. Like, I think there's some promise in there because there's it's just this new technology that's appearing and that people are using more and more. I mean, just yesterday, there was the whole Constitution DAO thing. Maybe you've heard of it. It's kind of very niche, but people trying to bring money to buy a copy of the Constitution. And that happened over less than a week and they raised 40 million and they failed at buying the Constitution. But you know, that's right. Wait, what oh. constitution was this? Sorry, I didn't actually hear about this. It was, so they were trying, it was like an organization. I think they started on Twitter. I don't know what a DAO yeah, is. Yeah. What is a DAO? A DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. It's kind of a new way to have an organization based on things that are automated and decentralized, obviously. Um, and using the, some crypto networks. So, you know, let's not go into the whole rabbit hole right now. But the point is... When there's a project that this growing community finds cool, like buying this, uh, it was like a copy uh, of the original U.S. Constitution was up for right. auction, and did you get a copy? Like no, it was an original, like oh, an original oh, I see, I see. copy, and they there were like a few copies. I think there's like ten of them or something. Written by Jefferson's handmaiden or something. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's 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 silly. It's definitely very silly, but at the like broader level, having new mechanisms based on crypto a lot of these people are thinking right now it's useful and i've been sort of exploring those and i really don't know actually i one of the reasons is that probably most scientists don't really know or trust uh that world and so i don't know <laughs> if it's actually a good avenue to do when you're trying to play the reputation game scientists are but, still working with paper pdfs let's be clear like that's the level of technological <laughs> advancement of the field i can see the advantage the advantage to blockchain just being that you have like transparency of transactions essentially like people there's not going to be any voting fraud or something like that let's say exactly there's new ways <clears throat> like at very high level there's new ways to trust people and systems mm. so maybe you can have something where like new ways to fund people new ways to um you publish a paper and you have a reviewer who will come and uh, review your thing and say it should be accepted or not for publication but if all of that is happening using blockchains maybe it actually makes it more trustworthy and fixes some of the problems with peer review for instance. well if it makes it more efficient sorry 
I was thinking that, like, you know, if you could anonymize the various peer reviewers, but keep a record of how they review right. papers, that would immediately give you a position to be like, well, hey, look, this referee has demonstrated an obvious bias towards this type of paper versus this type of paper. And they could be independently verified and analyzed without even exposing so, the person. Yeah. You'd also, if it's more efficient, you could potentially have more reviewers, too, to the point that mm -hmm. you can get reviewers from outside the discipline and it's not such a burden. And, and also you can maybe have actual financial incentives. Right now, the incentive to write a paper is not financial. The incentive is reputational. It's good for your career. It's what you're expected to do as a scientist, but you are not, unlike anyone who writes anything else, outside science, you are not expecting to be paid for what you're writing. No, you In pay. fact, you pay a lot for it, actually. In fact, you pay for it. Yeah, exactly. Especially if you want color pictures. And... Yeah. And so maybe there's, I think that would be very beneficial if we can get there and possibly crypto because it's also a new way to think about money and finances. So and how, do you, how do you imagine folks getting paid? I, I didn't quite follow you. Well, I'm not sure because it's complicated and I haven't been thinking that much on the money side of things but um there's ways for i don't know i, I don't really want to go into nfts and so on uh again crypto things right but you uh there are ways to incentivize work you mean like participating in, a, in the general network or do you mean like it could be it mm. could be that like it could be you could have the sort of crypto token that is issued to whenever and like research hub that i mentioned earlier is partly a crypto thing uh they if you participate in the community you get little coins that are tradable within the the, the community um odyssey works the same way which is like another uh it's an alternative to youtube it's a video right. hosting platform and they also have their own crypto blockchain sort of yeah. technology and maybe you don't even need blockchain, but like just reforming the way the monetary incentives for scientists would actually be a, a useful thing to do, and possibly part of the discussion on creating this new journal. Uh, although that's not something I've been focusing on yet. So they could be like incentivized to participate, not necessarily as an author, but just participate, like to spend their time. Mm -hmm. um, like as we a have a as anything, yeah, exactly. Like we have a friend who works at a major. Uh, you know, internet uh, company, and he's given some incentive to spend some time just going over problems in other departments' fields, like just to go through things. He's given some portion of uh, some incentives, some rewards for spending time debugging other people's problems. And yeah. so, if there was a reason for scientists to spend a few minutes of their day working on this greater network, that might be a way to to see it progress. I guess. Yeah, I mean. It it just seems like something, a field where so much needs to change at once. And it's the time, perhaps, I, I would always look at the surplus of PhDs and the surplus of science graduates, mm -hmm. and I'd, I'd kind of be worried about it because I'm like, well, where are all these people going to go, right? The dream of I'm going to graduate from a research institution and then do maybe one postdoc and then become a tenured professor is is dead. That is gone. That is dead. That's never going to happen. It's never going to come back. And so all of these PhDs are out in the world now, and they understand how the system works. They understand what is at stake. And now maybe for the first time ever, there's enough people in the world that are actually able to continue working on this outside of the academy, right? You, yeah. 
when you tear down a bridge, you don't tear down the bridge and then start building the next one. You build a bridge that's next to the original yeah. and then you dismantle the old one. Yeah. And all of those workers have found employment in the financial industry and, in, you know, robotics, biomedical, but they could probably be pulled back into participation quite easily since they were originally mm -hmm. guided to science, I imagine for the most part, by some level of curiosity and yeah. a real belief in the progress and the human project. So it seems, it seems certainly plausible that this sort of thing will work out. Yeah, it seems like if there, if there was ever a time where it was possible, it was now. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. So it's very cool. Uh, maybe I could share my very new, very basic website, but yeah, it's uh, jawws.org, so jaws.org, Journal of Accessible and Well-Written Science is what the acronym stands for. Love it. Um, so at least now I have uh, this little basic uh, platform where I can point people to. I will, over time, uh, add some ways to subscribe and support if you want. Uh, but really, at this point, if anyone who's hearing this wants to help, like just get in touch with me. I want to have the widest network of people interested in making science more readable as I can. And what's the best way to get in touch with you? You've got uh, the jaw, the you've got the Jaws website, and then do you have social media? Yeah, like the, the, jaw, the Jaws website is good, and then the main web, uh, social media platform I'm on is Twitter. So you can go uh, to Twitter. My uh, handle is etienneft uh, e t i e n n e f d. So catch me there if you want. Excellent. Cool. We'll put it in the description. Yep. And thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. That was a lovely discussion. Excellent. All right, have a great rest of your day. Excellent.